Hi there, listeners. Yoel here. I just wanted to give you a quick note of context before this episode. We'll spend a lot of time talking about something called MTurk without really defining what it is until pretty far into the episode, which is really A-plus podcasting on our part. So MTurk is short for Amazon Mechanical Turk. That's an online labor marketplace in which people can post tasks for workers to do in exchange for money. Psychology researchers have been using this service a lot in order to recruit people to participate in online studies. MTurk isn't the only one of those services. For example, there's also Prolific, which is targeted more specifically at psychology researchers. And on top of that, there's services such as Cloud Research, which used to be called Turk Prime, that build on top of MTurk, but try to make things a little easier for researchers. So that's the context you'll need to know to understand what we're talking about uh, in the first half of this episode. Okay, with that, here's our show. Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Bar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullet. Alexa, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you, Yoel? I'm good. You look cheerful somehow today. Cheerful. I think I'm in a good mood today. Um, yeah, one of my students got good news about a job offer, and I feel like um, I'm uh, basking in reflected glory. Is that the, the term? Uh I think that's the term that's used. Yeah. I mean, it's notable because you're usually in such a shitty mood. Yeah. I'm usually really grumpy. I was really grumpy earlier today. So I have a kitchen update for you, which is not good because my kitchen is supposed to be done. Yeah. No, I thought it was. I thought the kitchen was over. <laughs> well, the kitchen is mostly over, but my kitchen update is that I discovered. So I went to Vermont for um, Thanksgiving and I came back and I discovered that there had been a mouse in my new Lazy Susan. Oh, shit. I know. And so I'm pissed about it. So I'm like on a mission to get rid of these mice. Um, and I spent some time at Lowe's today. And I was annoyed because online it said that they had nine electric mouse traps, And in the store they had zero. <laughs> That's quite the disparity. <laughs> uh, so what did you end up going home with? I got a rat one. Um, uh -huh. which I think it, is that just like it, it's just overkill on a mouse is it just gonna explode the mouse oh god <laughs> okay so actually to back up a little bit I did consider the mouse traps that don't kill mice so I, I got that first um and so far there are no mice in that humane mouse trap. but I was thinking okay so the way that these humane mouse traps work is like it just like traps the mouse but doesn't kill it and then the idea is that like you take the mouse and then you take it at least two miles away so it doesn't like get back into your house and then you release it. And I don't know, maybe this is just like me excusing the easier option um, and not wanting to drive two miles. But like, is that humane? Like you're taking this mouse away from the only home it knows deliberately to a place where it will be able to recognize nothing and never be able to return to its home. And you're just like, good luck. Like, is that better? Yeah, well, that's that's funny. Yeah, I was actually thinking it's unethical for a different reason, which is you're just going to make it somebody else's problem. Like mm -hmm. it's going to find a new home to invade. But yeah, I guess the alternative is it just wanders in the wilderness until it dies of hunger or is eaten. Better better the quick death of the just explosion by electricity. So um, what are we drinking today? Uh, I have a beer that is made by Sun Lab. 
Um, and it is called Big Big Energy, and it's an American sour ale with mango, strawberry, and lime. I will be sure to update you on the flavor profiles of each of those things. Wow, yeah. Make sure you do. This sounds like an upgrade from last week's cake beer, at least. Yeah, this is. I'm a little more excited about this one. I chose this based on my expectation that I would like it and not that outrageous. <laughs> this is going to be total garbage. <laughs> uh, well, I can get behind that selection rule. Um, so I have uh, a beer from a place downstairs. Uh, uh, it's uh, called uh, Dispensary Brewing Company. So they're in uh, in Montreal. And this is actually a friend of the show, Drew Bailey. I think I mentioned uh, a while back brought us these beers. And this is now I'm actually... Uh, drinking one of them, it's a Sunny Blaze Session IPA, and I know nothing more about it, but I'm excited to try it. What's on the can? Um, it's sort of a trippy nature scene. There's these flowers. There's hops. There's um. Oh, this is a guy with a melting face. I was like, are those oysters? Are they vaginas? <laughs> what is going on? But it's it's his <laughs> eyes and ear. So I think it's supposed to be that I'm going to get like very tripped out by this beer. Okay, cool. <laughs> Sounds like it's already <laughs> okay. working. Yeah, really. It works surprisingly well. All right. Uh, I'm going to open it up right, right now. Mm. I like it. It's hoppy. It's kind of crisp. It's like not too bitter. This is so mm. good. I really like this. Yeah, it's meeting your expectations. Yeah. Um, I would say that the mango is like the first flavor out. And then you get the sort of strawberry lime at the end. I'm into it. Well, how did they time it that way? Good question. I is okay. So when people say like, oh yeah, it finishes this way, or you know, like is that all bullshit or is it real? I think it's real, but I don't know how it works. Do you have some taste buds that are slower than others? Like, is it something about the way a food or drink is designed or is it just like naturally you're going to get like sweeter flavors later and salty flavors first or something? Maybe one of our listeners knows. Yeah, perhaps we have like a food or flavor scientist among our listeners who can enlighten us. Maybe it's like, I feel like it's you swallow the, like if it's a drink, right? You like swallow the liquid and then it has kind of an aftertaste. So maybe that's literally like the stuff that's left behind. Oh, gross. (laughs) (laughs) The residue, if you will. (laughs) Highly appetizing. Anyway, I'm glad your beer turned out so well. Thanks. Mm. So we wanted to talk about Mechanical Turk today. And uh, this was brought up by a recent paper that got a lot of attention for this Uh, headline finding, um, which is that after excluding everybody who uh, uh, didn't meet um, standards of data quality, they ended up with 14 people out of 529 that they considered to be usable. So that's 2.6%. And I think that number got got thrown around a lot as like, wow, this is terrible and MTurk is awful. Uh, So this paper is called Too Good to Be True. Bots and Bad Data from Mechanical Turk. And it was published in Perspectives on Psychological Science uh, in the last like month. It's an online first paper uh, by Margaret Webb and June Tangney. So 
Alexa, did you encounter this paper on social media? Like, did people tell you about it? How did you hear about this? Uh, I heard about it from you when you suggested that we read it. <laughs> I see, yesterday. Okay. <laughs> You're, you know, um, obviously the more tapped in of the two of us. So I'm surprised that I'm the one who heard about this Oh, first. definitely. Uh, yeah, I'm usually way more up to date than you. Yeah, exactly. You're, I mean, I've been meaning to talk to you about your obsessive following of social media and that it might interfere with your work and personal life, but you know, <laughs> it's it's tough to get you to change, to be honest. <laughs> right. So um I heard about this because like people were talking about it a lot because that's kind of a crazy number, like two point six percent uh usable participants uh is pretty uh hard to believe. And a lot of us run Mechanical Turk or or other kind of online participant uh, recruitment studies. Like most of what I do now is, well, we use Prolific, which is a competing service, but is these online panels. Uh, and if it really is the case that the data quality is so atrocious from these online panels, then obviously we all should really be worrying about why are we using these to run so many studies. So I guess first, Alexa... I'm curious how much stuff you run online versus in person. Yeah, so I I run most of we run most of the stuff in the lab online, uh, and so yeah when I when I read this um, when I read this paper I did feel like somewhat validated because we've also been struggling in our lab to get good quality data. Um, I think for some of the same reasons as the authors, um, and some of which may sort of reflect a lack of awareness about some of the best standards or uh, the yeah current best standards in um, online data collection, which we'll also get into. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So why don't we talk about really quickly how they came up with this 2.6% yeah, yeah, right. number. Let's do that. Okay. So uh, this is this is from the paper. They uh, recruited 529 participants, and this is just uh, regular MTurk with some uh, selection filters uh, to limit the participants to certain demographics, uh, but they weren't using um, Cloud Research, formerly Turk Prime, or anything like that. This is just vanilla MTurk. Uh, so they recruited 529. Up front, uh, they excluded, so didn't allow to complete or really begin the survey, uh, 189 because their ages didn't match the range that they wanted. So the researchers were interested in ages 18 through 24. MTurk would let you set, I want people 18 through 25. So some of those people who are outside the researchers' preferred range, it's not like you MTurk did anything wrong, right? They said, we'll deliver you 18 to 25-year-olds. Some of those people are 25. They don't let them complete the survey. Uh, some people also give age ranges outside of 18 through 25, including some that are just nonsense. So that's 189. Then they have people read the consent form. They, for some reason, give them a quiz about the consent form, mm -hmm. uh, like facts in the consent form. Yeah. If you fail the quiz twice, so you fail it once, you get put back to the consent form to reread it. You take the quiz again. You fail it twice. You get excluded. You don't even get to start the survey. That's another 136. Mm -hmm. So right off the top, they're screening out before they start uh, more than half. Yeah. Now... I mean, I think we can stop here uh, and talk about whether these exclusions are reasonable. But like, I think one important point here is that you're not paying for those 
right? They're they're not doing your study. You're screening them at the beginning. I will say that I felt like a little misled by that in the paper. So this 2.6% number um, becomes as ridiculously small as it is because all of these people who didn't take the study were um, included, right? Um, and yeah, I, I didn't realize that the first time I read the paper. Um, I only realized that when, when I read the response. So I thought that all of these people were being paid and that they were getting 2.6% reliable data. Yeah. Yeah, it it does um it's it's it seems to be written in a way that like maximizes the shock value but isn't particularly uh I would say it's less accurate than it could be. Which like I, I honestly yeah, you I think you could write kind of a shocking paper about these challenges with collecting data online, but yeah, I don't know. That's a little cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I I found it to be that as well. Yeah. Um I also think if you're I I never ever give quizzes about the consent form. Uh-huh. Um I don't know why that was necessary. Yeah. Maybe the ethics the IRB asked for it or something, but like I've never heard of such a thing. And I think it's kind of mildly unethical to get these people like they're obviously like on the clock working, right? Mm-hmm. So they invest the time in accepting your hit, opening your website, reading your stupid consent form, taking your quiz and failing it twice and then you're like goodbye no money for you. So uh-huh. sad. See you later. Right. It's it's like you're really kind of dicking them around in a way that I feel is uh, a little questionable. Yeah, I don't know. OK, so um, I think that it's reasonable to expect that people don't read consent forms closely. And I mean, we might be like nitpicky about that and say like, oh, people should be reading them carefully. But I, I constantly um, skip over like things like terms and conditions and stuff like that. And I just like check and sign and blah, blah, blah. And I think it's reasonable to expect that participants do that too. And I think that's fine, especially, you know, somebody who's um, an MTurk worker and maybe does this kind of stuff all the time and maybe consent forms are sort of routine to them. Um, Yeah, this reminded me of, so um, with a couple of my grad students, we've been talking about, yeah, ways to sort of improve data quality and things like that. And sometimes they'll suggest something to me like, oh, we could ask them a question about um, this. And they'll suggest a question where I'm like, don't ask that. Surely people will not be able to answer that. That's too hard. And like they sometimes come back to me with like, don't we want people to be really paying attention? And I think that the balance is like, can you be getting good data um, from people who like are failing this check. And I think for, in this case, people who are not paying attention to the consent form, I don't think that suggests they're going to give you bad data. Like you could get quite yeah. good data from people who skim the consent form. And Yeah. Yeah. It's just boilerplate. And exactly like you said, you know, do you read every terms and conditions that uh, you run into in your life? I'm just scrolled at the end as quickly as possible and click accept. Right. right. And yeah, again, these are people who are working um, who are trying to maximize the number of hits they're doing uh, per hour in order to make more money. And they're not going to spend time scrutinizing your consent form because it's not important to them. It's kind of weird to expect that they will. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So anyway, those people all get kicked out. Now we're left with 200 um, who proceed to the main study. Of those 200, 60 discontinue or they go straight to the end. So I guess that means they uh, leave every question blank and just skip to the end to get oh, their okay. code. Actually, most of those people were just dropouts. So uh-huh. they uh, don't skip to the end. Uh, they just quit the survey at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not paying those folks either. 
yeah. um, the people who just quit, right? They, they're out their time too bad. Um, and, uh, they do not oh, get money okay. if I, if I read the paper correctly, because it, it, it at least implied you have to go to the end of the, of the survey to get your code, right, right, which, right. which you yeah. can do by just skipping through everything. Right. But if you don't do that, if you just drop out, then, then you get no money. Right. right. Um, they had, uh, embedded attention checks, 16 participants failed at least one of those. Um, so that would be. Oh, roughly a 10% attention check failure rate, mm -hmm. which is a little on the high side, but not like crazy high mm -hmm. in my experience. Wh what do you make of that failure rate? Um, we, I think we get higher rates of attention check failures in our studies than that even. Um, and these are, these are often with uh, subject pool participants. So yeah, one thing that maybe we can come back to is, um, whether any any of this is specific to MTurk or whether these are challenges with online studies, period, or or maybe even any sort of study where a person isn't being like directly monitored in in some way. Um, but yeah, a ten percent failing attention check rate does not sound like unusually high to me. Yeah. So uh, we exclude those people, the sixteen who failed the attention check. Uh, they exclude an additional. 47 who completed the survey in less than 20 minutes. Now, the survey is supposed to take, the researchers estimate, 40 to 50 minutes, which already for me is like, whoa, no, you know, do not do that on MTurk. Or if you do, you have to really, I, I think just honestly pay people more in order to keep them engaged, maybe break it up into multiple studies that they complete in multiple sessions, because that's just like a really long MTurk study. I never run MTurk studies that long. Yeah, I don't think that that's, that's a good idea. Um, I And I know there's research that suggests that paying people more does affect data quality. Um, but I, I'm starting to think that a study that's that long, like there's no way to really get really good quality data, even if you're paying people really well. Like, I feel like there must be some kind of ceiling where it's like, this is starting to be something that's just not that feasible on MTurk. Yeah. Yeah. People just, they tune out. You're going to fatigue them and you're going to get worse quality data or they're going to start skipping through or, you know, uh, paying less attention. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I would worry about that even in the lab, even sitting undergrads down for an like 40 to 50 minutes of uh -huh. filling out questionnaires. <laughs> like, uh -huh. are you really going to get good data? Uh -huh. I think you should think about how to design that study in a way that doesn't require people to pay sustained attention for nearly an hour. So at any rate, um, they kick out 47 who respond uh, in the researcher's opinion too quickly, such that they couldn't have been paying good attention. Um, and then they also eliminate a final 63 who on open questions at the end of the survey gave kind of weird or inappropriate, not fitting free text responses. So there were two questions uh, that people saw. Uh, one read, who are you? Write 10 sentences below describing yourself as you are today. And a second question that read, who will you be? Think about, and then they varied some time from now, write 10 sentences below describing yourself as you mm -hmm. imagine you will be in that period of time. And they kick out uh, 63 people who gave answers to those questions that like were confusing or really short or just nonsense. And that's how you're left 
with um, 14 people. Mm -hmm. Now, I think another thing that people who've run stuff online are very wary of is asking people to write in text. Uh In general, people hate writing in text in online studies. Uh I think that's often because they're doing them on their smartphones. Mm -hmm. And saying, we're going to run a 40 to 50 minute study, and then we're going to ask people to write lists of 10 things twice. Mm -hmm. It just, I mean, it sort of blows my mind, right? It's like, did these researchers talk to anybody who's collected data online before? Like, why would you expect to get good quality data doing that? Yeah. Yeah. Asking somebody to write 10 sentences. Um, Yeah. I don't, if I really needed somebody to write 10 sentences, like what would I do? Yeah. I guess I'd, uh, I don't know, bring them into the lab and um, yeah, I don't know. I'm really not sure how I could get somebody to write 10 studies twice. Like, I feel like there's just not a lot of situations where I can incentivize that enough to expect people to do that. One thing that I've heard of people doing is putting it in the study description that it involves writing. Okay. Uh, another thing that you can do on Prolific is restrict it to people who are on a computer rather than a smartphone or a tablet. Um, so yeah, there's, I mean, there's things that you can do. I, I don't know how well they work and I don't know whether people have looked at that systematically. Mm-hmm. But definitely if I if there were extended writing, like I would let them know ahead of time, the participants, and I would probably require uh, a desktop browser so that they presumably would have a keyboard. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So after all of these exclusions, uh, that's how they get to the 14, what they call, you know, viable participants, um, which is 2.6%. So, I'm curious, like, what your high-level reaction is here. I guess we've talked a, a little about it already. But, like, overall, what's your take on this? My take is, like, on the one hand that I, yeah, I sort of resonate with the general points that it's, like, more challenging than, than it might seem to get high-quality data online. Um, and, like, yeah, perhaps the more subtle point that we might not, often be sort of probing our data enough to realize how many problems there may be with it. So like the like hook in the title, like too good to be true. I think that there is something about that sentiment that is like important and relevant to people's research, right? So I think that sometimes people aren't doing um, all of the different steps that these researchers went to, to identify problems with their data And so they're, you know, writing papers and interpreting effects and looking at effect sizes and all of this stuff with data that could be pretty junky. Um, And so, yeah, there's a piece of it that I appreciate. Um, Yeah. And like, I I guess the the part that I feel is a little misleading. So first of all, I mean, the 2.6% is, I think, for reasons we've already talked about a bit misleading. Um, but also I think that this doesn't have that much to do with MTurk. Um, although I guess, I think what the authors would say is there were some things that they like paid extra for on MTurk that aren't working. Um, and it's one thing to say like, okay, it's not MTurk's job to, you know, make sure that you get good quality data. But if MTurk is like, pay us more money and we'll give you good quality data, then, then it starts to become more MTurk's responsibility. Right. So, um, 
So yeah, that's my that's my take. What did you think, you all? I probably feel more or less the same way as you do, but I'm a little less sympathetic mm-hmm. um, to the authors here and and to this paper in general. So I think it's kind of baffling that this got published in its current form because it has so many kind of obvious problems. Um, and notably, it was not peer-reviewed in the traditional sense. So it didn't get sent out. Uh, there's a little note that says it was accepted after internal review by the by the editorial board, um, which is kind of remarkable. And it kind of reads like the sort of thing that like you really should have gotten feedback from reviewers on because I think lots of people would have told you what's wrong with this. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's a little bit like, um, and I'm I'm taking some of these points from a, a response, uh, which is a preprint, which I think we'll get to. Um, it it's a bit like any technique you can use badly, and then it's silly to to blame the technique and to kind of say by implication other people who are using this technique are doing a shitty job. So if I were to do some sort of physiological measurement and not have the first idea of what I was doing or how to clean data, right? Just like slap some sensors on people, take some readings, and then get garbage results and say, oh, physio is bunk. I mean, I think people would say that's ridiculous. And I think in the same way, this is not doing the most basic things that you need to do in order to get good quality data online, and then saying, oh, well, the whole enterprise is worthless, and I don't trust any research that was done online. It just doesn't follow. Yeah. I... I guess like to be a little bit more sympathetic, it's not like these researchers did this study and they like threw up a study online and were like, we don't have to worry about data quality and then like interpreted their results. Like that would be the laziest version, maybe the most equivalent to the kind of like psychophys study that you're describing. They do something that's like sort of intermediate, I think, which is that they they do a lot of data checking um, and they had a lot of this like worked into their study, right? So things like attention checks and the like consent quiz and stuff like that. Um, But they seem to be like uh, maybe a bit like naive in the way that they've designed their study for an MTurk platform, which I think like the the response will get into um, just in terms of their expectations of what um, participants are are willing to do in this kind of context. So, yeah, but I mean, it's also a little surprise. It was a little surprising to me that, um, yeah, that this paper got published in the form that it's currently in because, I mean, it's almost like a, a case study, right? Like it's like a description of what happened in one study. And as I learned from reading both this study and the um, the response, like there's a lot of very systematic work on, you know, like how things like MTurk work, data quality, online studies, um, how things like compensation influence data quality. So like, yeah, I mean, it just feels like um, what can we really learn from one case study when there's all this systematic work out there on this? I think you're right that it was being a little unfair. Um, But there is an element of this, of people kind of diving in without knowing really anything Mm -hmm. about how to do this, how to use this tool, and then doing a bunch of things wrong and getting bad results and complaining there's something wrong with the tool. It's like, no, you can, right? (laughs) right? Like, Yeah, like I can see the first two steps. I mean, I can definitely relate to the first two steps, like diving in and fucking it up, right? But 
But then I guess like blaming the tool step too far. <laughs> right. You're not like, oh, maybe the problem is me. Maybe the problem is I designed a study that was like not good for this. Maybe the problem is like I underpaid people dramatically and got bad data. No, it's it's the fault of the platform. And that that strikes me as silly, right? No, like the issue here is that they did a bunch of things wrong. And that's why they're not getting good data. Yeah. So do do we want to talk about uh the the response? Yeah, let's do that. The response was written by uh, Christine uh, Cuskley and Justin Sulik. Um, and these authors basically um, critique the original paper on a couple of grounds. So one is they start by noting the fact that a lot of the um, people who were cut from that that number, right? So included in the non 2.6% were people who weren't paid to complete the study and were screened out at the beginning, right? So that's the first point that they make. And they point out that like, you can't really see this. This is not like something that you can be mad at MTurk for like, you know, you, you've already, you haven't, you haven't wasted money on these participants. Um, and then uh, they also go through the other reasons that the um, authors had to ins- exclude participants and basically note some of the things that we've started talking about, um, sort of like naive choices that were made by the researchers um, that likely made this data quality worse than it could have been otherwise. Um, and they also note that in some cases, the exclusion rates that the authors were observing are sort of similar or comparable to other um, online platforms and uh, not specific to MTurk. Um, so essentially, these authors are like, okay, the, the 2.6 number is misleading, um, even if we're looking just at this study, but also it's representative of like decisions that these authors made that um, could have been better, right? So, um, and, and there's a, like, a lot of defending mTurk as a platform and suggesting that if you sort of know what you're doing, it's a it can be a very useful platform. Uh, this preprint is called The Burden for High Quality Online Data Collection Lies with Researchers, Not Recruitment Platforms, which nicely summarizes what they're trying to say, I think. Uh, and we'll, of course, have a link to uh, both of these papers in the show notes. So can we talk about like what we think that they did wrong? We sort of said, look, they made these uh, naive mistakes. So what were they? First of all, I think that the study is too long um, and maybe too long for an online study period. Um, and then I think that they, the writing requirement, I mean, we've already talked about that. I think that that... Um, is something that you just can't really expect from participants um, doing a study online, especially if they're on their phones. Um, yeah, the the authors of the the response um, basically say that they underpaid participants, um, and yeah, I don't use MTurk often enough. Like I often do online studies using the subject pool, so I have less of a sense about that. Um, and how much better the data would have been if the compensation had been higher. But I, I also think that you just need to consider, you know, whether the amount that you're paying people is like ethical beyond the impact that it has on your data quality. 
Yeah. So they say they paid the minimum wage, which if that's the federal minimum uh-huh. wage, it's I think seven fifty, which is really low. Like if I go and get a job at White Castle, I get fifteen at least. Right. That I think is sort of the entry level de facto mm-hmm. minimum wage and kind of around what we've been paying is mm-hmm. like fifteen an hour. And even that, like if you want people to really pay attention for an hour, I think you have to pay more than that. So yeah, study too long, first of all, pay Mm-mm. pretty bad by current standards. Um, and then just I never use just mm. MTurk. And the reason for that is that you can set a, a region filter or a country filter so you can say US only, for example. But on MTurk, it, it it just doesn't work very well. So I guess that is like you could say that's a legitimate complaint against the platform, right? They're like, you're going to get U.S. residents only if you check this box. And in fact, that's not true. You get a lot of non-U.S. people and people who like don't seem to speak Mm -hmm. English particularly well. Uh, And so I would always use when I used MTurk, I I would use Turk Prime, which has their separate like vetted pool of participants. And they're now, now called Cloud Research. And they've actually like done quite a bit of they've run studies to show that the data quality that you get using their approved participants is is quite good so they actually have you know research and data backing up the idea that you get good quality data if you use their approved participants or else i use prolific which again it's like it's a special purpose um marketplace for psychology researchers specifically the people who are signing up there know that they're going to be doing psychology studies and they seem to do a decent job of ensuring that if somebody signs up and says i'm in the us that they mm-hmm. actually are in the us so if a student came and was like oh i want to just run this on regular mturk i'd be like no you shouldn't do that because we're going to get a lot of people who don't meet the criteria and who particularly like don't really mm-hmm. speak english all that well this is, by the way, like a little bit of a tangent. Like, there's a, um, there's some talk about bots. Is that actually in the title of the paper? Yeah, bots and bad data. Yeah, I, I thought that was a mistake too. That's really because it never comes up again. And it, there's, uh, I think, in the abstract or early on in the paper, it's like, well, you know, we got 14 responses from actual humans, sort of implying that like some of the other mm-hmm. responses were from software. Yeah, they have zero evidence for that, and. Yeah, there was this huge deal uh, a couple years ago, the MTurk bot scare. People mm-hmm. were like, it's bots, it's bots. I never saw any good evidence that it was actually bots in the sense of like somebody wrote a program to go through, accept hits, you know, fill out surveys and and collect the money. Like there is quite a bit of people in developing countries will do these tasks for money and get around the MTurk location uh-huh. filter in various ways. And that makes sense because like even like a bad wage for an American worker, if you're, you know, in a in a poor country can mm-hmm. be a lot of money. Right. So they're definitely incentivized to try and get around those location filters and do your studies. And they don't really yeah. care about your data quality. Uh, so, I mean, that's a, like a ongoing issue and something that you have to look out for. And that's why, like, I think prolific or, or cloud research are much better. But like calling those people bots is just like not factually correct. Yeah. And I think like another thing that ends up falling into that category is it seemed like the um, 
yeah, the authors of the original paper thought that some of the participants were duplicates. So they mentioned like people who sets of responses where the written responses were really similar across participants. Um, and I do think that's that probably happens just based on intuition, right? Like, you know, I can imagine somebody who, you know, creates multiple accounts and like just like does the same study and repeats their responses throughout. Um, but again, that's not a bot. Yeah, it's just humans behaving in ways that you don't want them to. Right. 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 And so there's like, yeah, casual throwing around of bot just like left a bad taste. And again, it was consistent with the idea of like, this is really hyping up something without bringing the goods to back up mm -hmm. the claims that are being made. Like if you're going to say bot in the title, then give me some evidence that these aren't just humans who are not paying good attention. And I do think it's totally right also that um, also people collaborate. So uh, particularly with these international Turkers, um, it's sort of a business. So they'll like uh -huh. go to an office and they'll like do MTurk there is, is my understanding of how this works. Um, and then they'll share answers to the open responses amongst each other. So I, that's another way that you can get these like duplicate or like very close to duplicate responses in open text. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it just makes sense that, you know, it's a, it's a big world out there. And if you're going to collect data from in theory, anybody mm -hmm. on earth, right, it's the internet, anybody can get on it. Like you have to use some best practices to not get people that you don't want in your sample. Right. And you can't, I mean, I, I suppose again, it comes back to like naivete and not really understanding some of the pitfalls here. Although I will say that in the response, um, the authors write, okay, they use this analogy. They say in the same way that somebody's being hired via a classified ad says nothing about their job performance, the mere fact of a participant's recruitment via MTurk says nothing about the quality of data they provide. Rather, it is the responsibility of the researcher to develop a rigorous methodology. And I thought this was a little unfair um, because... You know, the classified section isn't telling people, oh, okay, we're going to provide you with um, somebody who is going to have good job performance. Whereas MTurk does tell people that. And they tell people, like, you can pay extra and, you know, you can know that your participants are going to fall within this age range. Or you can be, like, more confident that this per person will give you better quality data. So I do think that um, – I don't think that all of the responsibility lies with the researcher. I think that platforms, um, if they say that they're going to deliver an age range, they should have a way of confirming that. If they say that they're going to deliver high quality data, they should be like very transparent about what that means and how they're establishing that. I think that is fair. Um, and I, I think it's legitimate to say, you know, Amazon over promises and under delivers, right? They say you're yeah. only going to get US participants and that's totally not true. Um, or right. that, you know, they recruited people in this study with a 95% plus approval rating. Um, and that certainly suggests that these are going to, be, going to be people who like give good data and you can't rely on that either. So there is some like knowledge there that you have to have of like, oh yeah, you can't really trust Amazon um, to, yeah, um, to deliver you good quality uh, data by by default. I mean, again, it's the, like, I, I feel like that's kind of domain expertise. And honestly, like, I wouldn't expect Amazon, I mean, they seem to have stumbled into this kind of accidentally, and they're, I guess, like, they make enough money off of this to keep it running, but I can't imagine this is a priority for them, right? This has got to be like a rounding error 
in their revenue. And so like they clearly don't really give a shit about the quality of data yeah. that you get on M3. It's very clear. Whereas, you know, somebody like Cloud Research or Prolific, they're in the business of giving researchers good quality data. I don't know if like word gets around that, oh, prolific data is bad these days. You know, they're obviously their business is going to suffer. And so they care a lot more. Mm-hmm. And so those are the people where I trust them more to actually enforce the filters that they have. Like I, if Prolific tells me a participant is in the US, I believe them because they're incentivized to make sure that that's actually true. Shall we take a quick break and then we can come back and talk about our own uh, experiences running online studies? Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. We used poisonous gases. And we poisoned their asses. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we could have fun. Affirmative. I poked one, it was dead. Their system of oppression. What did it lead to? Global robo-depression. Robots will buy people. They had so much aggression that we just had to kill them and to shut their systems down. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter, at 4 Pod. Uh, if you like, you can email us, 4 Pod at gmail.com. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com. You can find any of our episodes there. Drop us a line there as well if you like. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Helps other people discover the show, and we just really get a kick out of reading those reviews. Alexa, anything I've left out? Sounds good. So I'm not quite done with my beer yet, but I will be soon. And I realized I thought there was another one in there in the fridge and there's not, I don't know where it went. Maybe my girlfriend drank it. Uh, maybe I drank it and blacked out. It's, it, it's tough to say <laughs> what happened to that beer, but there were definitely, there were multiple and now there's, there's only the one. But, um, so I got here, I'll hold it up for you to see, um, this bottle of Sazerac rye. So that's going to be my go-to for when I drain this beer, which is going to be pretty soon. Good work. I'm just going to continue drinking the same beer as usual. But the, I mean, it's a, still a big beer. It's not a tiny beer. With that, uh, let us get back to the show. So we had been talking about this paper, uh, recounting a bad MTurk experience. Um, and I think we were both to different degrees kind of critical of it. And I'm curious, you know, you said uh, this is getting this right, you know, maybe takes qu- uh, experience running online studies and you sort of learn this as you go, which which I think is, at least in the beginning, was totally true because there were no real guides to doing this. So I'm curious how long you've been using online samples and how that has evolved over time. So I first discovered MTurk in, I think, 2009. Mm-hmm. So back then, Almost nobody was using it, uh-huh. and it was really cheap. It was like yeah. insanely cheap. Like the going rate was just so low, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is like magic!" 
this is incredible. I remember like running my first Amtrak study. I don't, it was close to that. I like in, it was in grad school. So, and, and like you could get your data in an hour. Yeah. And right before then it had been like laboriously for the most part, getting people to come into the lab to yeah. fill out paper questionnaires. Right. Totally. Yeah. 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 There were a few papers where they, the researchers had, they made like a custom website and got people to go there either through like word of mouth or maybe some sort of online advertising, but it was really, really uncommon. So yeah, I remember running those first studies for a paper that I think came out in 2012 and being like blown away by how easy and quick and cheap it was. I was like, this is Mm going to be a game changer. And it did. I mean, it obviously like caught on to an incredible extent to the point where now, you know, if you open any psychology journal, I think your the modal study is going to be online participants of one kind or another. It's just really like completely taken over. And I, I think it goes along with this emphasis on bigger samples, which is just more achievable to do when you don't have to run undergrads one at a time. Right. Yeah. I think that's sort of an underappreciated fact that like the people who came along and said, you know, we should be running bigger samples. They weren't the first to say that, but they were the first to say that at a time where it's actually like feasible for people to do that and still, you know, publish as many papers as they had been. Yeah. Right. And yeah, I mean, the discrepancy in the amount of like time and effort is like pretty dramatic. Right. Um, So yeah, especially if you compare it to having people like fill out paper questionnaires, like it's just like orders of magnitude. Like it's going to take you like 30 minutes on. Well, OK, yeah, it depends on on, I guess, like all the parameters and stuff like that. But but you can you can collect data in like a matter of hours um, online. And, you know, to do this, collect the same amount of data in person would be like, yeah, 100 times as long. Yeah, I'm making myself sound super old, but like when I was in grad school, it was undergrad subject pool or else, you know, paying people to fill out surveys. And so either you would be going to these big lecture classes and like making announcements Uh and like posting flyers, hoping that people would come Uh or you or your research assistants would go around like basically harassing people on the street being like, would you like to fill out this survey for a few dollars? Mm -hmm. Yeah. One one thing that we did, maybe like an intermediate thing, was try to use Craigslist to get people to... Oh, how did that work for you? Bad, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the yeah. classified ad. like. Right, right. Exactly right. Yeah. So at this point, you said you're you're running most of your stuff online. Is that right? Yeah, we. I would say that that's true. Um, but we often use a, the online subject pool um, at Alabama. And there's quite a few undergrad psychology students, so so we can usually get pretty good numbers from doing that. So what has your experience been like with data quality? Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, I could sympathize with the authors in some ways because um, we've had, like, some pretty bad experiences with data quality. And I think sometimes reflecting some of the same kind of naivety of the... Um, of these authors. So just expecting too much of participants who are completing studies online. Um, and 
Yeah. In some ways, like, so we've done things like make studies too long or, or one of my grad students, like ask people to, um, watch basically like not, not a lecture length video, but, uh, like a mini lecture length video. And like, on the one hand, it's like, okay, um, clearly that's not the kind of thing that we can expect people to do in online studies. And then on the other hand, it's like, okay, but we are expecting people to do that for online classes. And this was like, you know, during COVID and stuff like that. Right, right, um, right. But maybe they're, they have more incentive when they get a grade for it, whatever, and like versus um, credit for participating in the, in the participant pool. Um, but yeah, so for things like that, I mean, um, one of my students ran, you know, for her dissertation study, yeah, she wanted to compare people's responses to different um, types of lectures. And she wanted people online to watch this, you know, watch this video. Um, and only about half of her um, participants, like watched the entire video. And this was like, pretty devastating. <laughs> were these MTurkers? Or were they? No, these are these are subject pool participants. Um, which I think like, in some ways, I don't know. I think that I had the naive perception that they would, their data would be better. Um, so obviously like I don't have the con same concern about like bots or, you know, people who are like in an MTurk office sharing responses with each other. Um, but still we see the same kinds of things, like the same sort of like the, the goal is to just like get through this as quickly as possible. And there's not a, only a very small proportion, I think, of the population of people completing these studies are like really taking them seriously, I guess. Um, so yeah, she had to exclude a ton of data for various reasons. Um, and yeah, she told me that I asked her about sharing this experience on the podcast and she was like, you can tell, you can, you can say that I cried when I learned this. So it's like really disappointing, you know, when you go into these things and you, um, and, and you like, yeah, are expecting to get, get decent data and then you get way worse data than you thought. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I, I think we've all been there. So actually my intuition is for the online participant pools that are, where they really try to maintain high quality, that those participants are more motivated than yeah. undergrads are, Yeah, right? They care about their rating. A lot. Yeah. And and often also they participate because they're intrinsically interested. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I think the sort of person who signs up for a prolific is like, oh, psychology study sounds interesting. Yeah. So this is a, like, again, case study situation. But another one of my grad students ran some participants on prolific and some in the subject pool. And one of his attention checks was he had people read like vignettes about um, politicians and then asked them to uh, choose from a multiple choice option what the name of the politician that was just described was. And so participants can scroll up in this case. So it's a really easy question. Um, and we had 55% of our subject pool participants getting that right and 92% of prolific participants getting that right. So definitely the the prolific participants were doing better than our subject pool participants. Wow. That's a big gap. Yeah. And also like, what the hell? <laughs> Why can't you listen? They couldn't even be motivated to scroll up. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I mean, sometimes I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I get that studies are sometimes boring and I feel bad for that actually. Like 
I, I want to make my studies more interesting. And this is something that the um, authors of the response talk about, like getting better at, yeah, actually like making the experience enjoyable for people. And, and maybe that's like el involves elements of gamifying things or something like that. But, um, but then sometimes I'm like, come on guys, <laughs> like yeah, seriously, this just feels like a low bar. Right, right, right. Scroll up and read the name and fill it in here. It does not seem like you're asking for the minute stars. Yeah, you know, so if anything, I found that prolific participants sometimes can be prone to overthinking. So for example, we just ran a couple studies in which we're trying to manipulate perceptions of somebody's emotionality. And this is like part of a bigger thing that's like not super important to explain, but we tell people either it's a control condition, we don't really say anything about the actor, or we tell people that this person was unemotional. And then we ask them, how emotional do you think they were while they were doing this thing? And so the prolific people write comments that are like, well, I don't understand why you're asking me about emotion when you just told me the person was unemotional. You know, I, I'm uh -huh. like, no, just say they were unemotional. Just it's a manipulation check. Just say what I told you. And they're like, it doesn't make sense that you would ask that given that you just told me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i feel like they really are paying attention uh-huh yeah that's that's cool yeah 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 i mean we do get you know some people who fail the attention checks and usually it's single digits right and we typically kick them out um but i don't really worry on prolific that people are going to speed through or that they're not going to pay attention at all uh, because the data just don't show those sorts of hallmarks of inattentiveness, right? So like scale reliabilities look good. The factor analyses look like they should. If you ask people at the end to recall things that they saw, they remember. So all of that stuff checks out probably more so than I would expect from undergrads who, to be honest, like I haven't run a study on the undergrads and all right, well, it was pre-COVID actually. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything for which you would be like, we got to go in lab? Like, is any of your research require that these days? Um, let's see. I think that we've been thinking about doing that. I think, well, now I would do anything that requires participants, anything where we would want them to, to like watch a video or anything where we want them to write more. Um, yeah, I would have them come into the lab for that kind of stuff. Um, and then, I mean, this goes without saying, but one of my grad students, um, does qualitative research. And so obviously like all of this is in, well, actually not, not necessarily in person, but on zoom, right. Or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but one-on-one. -on -one, anyway. uh -huh. Yeah. So I haven't really had occasion to run this stuff. And I guess that's something we can get into. Like, I do feel like just the ease of running stuff online affects the sorts of studies you think of running. Yeah. I now naturally just tend towards, can we do this in a, you know, max 10 minutes online study rather than something more complicated where we have to get people in. But in the past, definitely like anything where we want them to watch a movie or listen to audio or anything like that. Like, I just don't trust that people are actually going to do that in the way that I want them to, um, online, uh, anything where they interact yeah. Uh, I, I think that people, yeah, online participants are pretty skeptical of if you're like, oh, you're going to interact with this other person, we're going to match you. Like, I don't know that they believe that. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes like props are nice, 
right? So it's mm -hmm. like, we want you to bet on a marble being drawn out of one of these two jars. Oh. It's just nicer if they can physically see the jars rather than like a picture. That's so cute that you you have like jars full of marbles in your lab. Oh yeah, there's totally like, there's there's jars full of marbles in my lab right now. That, you know, takes, that takes me back. <laughs> yeah, it's old school. I mean, I... Well, this this all went away with COVID and hasn't really restarted yet, honestly. Uh -huh. And I, I wonder about hanging on to that lab space, which I want to do kind of for uh, better safe than sorry reasons, but which I also kind of feel bad about because like I haven't really run anything in there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Do you have dedicated lab space on campus? Yeah. And, um, but basically I... I donated some of my lab space to another faculty member who does a lot more in-person studies. Um, or I don't know, I maybe like I traded or something like that. Um, so I have space where I could run participants and then, you know, I um, sometimes collaborate with her. So, uh, but yeah, we use the the lab space pretty minimally. She does EEG research. So, um, so that's another reason you need to bring people into the lab you know at Tilburg we had this model where the the lab was shared and it was sort of run by the department and they paid that seems so sensible yeah it, it, it so it was great like you didn't have to buy your own equipment um it got used much more efficiently uh there was a little bit of scheduling overhead but really not much so I would be into doing something like that. I, I think for a lot of us behavioral people, because we've moved to like nine out of 10 studies online, it would be very easy to share space between us. Yeah. I mean, I do have some nostalgia for uh, in-lab studies where, you know, yeah, like you're actually like getting people to like try to solve a maze on, on a piece of paper or something like that. Like that was like one measure that we used in grad school. Um, and it's just like not feasible to get um, high enough ends doing studies like that, or at least, at least like not with the resources that I have. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. It's, it, it it's sad. It like, I mean, online obviously constrains in many ways, the sorts of studies you can do, but so does running in a lab where you just practically can't yeah. run those big sample sizes. So like anything subtle, forget about it. Yeah. So do you do any of these like strategies to make your studies like entertaining and interesting to participants? Like do you gamify your studies in any way? No, I don't do anything, but because I do a lot of moral judgment stuff, I think people do find them uh -huh. interesting Yeah, because yeah. it's like, you know, what do you think of people who do this weird shit? And they're like, uh -huh. oh, wow, I like that. Sometimes I, I like think it would be cool to um, give participants their results to some of the stuff that they, um, especially like questionnaires that they fill out or whatever. Um, so I think that that's like one of the ways that the IAT ended up getting so much data when it initially started was that people got their IAT scores and people are inherently interested in that kind of thing, you know? Um, and I think that people are really interested in personality, but I would say even more broadly, like individual differences. So like people like taking quizzes and, and hearing how they did on them or how they compared to other people. So that's something that I've thought about as a way to um, make the experience more interesting for people, but I haven't tried it. Yeah. Unfortunately, I just mostly don't do that kind of research, so I couldn't really tell them anything interesting about, uh -huh. you know, <laughs> You could be responses. like, oh, your morals are really fucked up compared to other people. <laughs> See you, professional help immediately. Nobody thinks that this is okay. <laughs> <laughs> you are the one person in the entire study.
who said that this was acceptable. You should really worry. Yeah. Yeah. High entertainment value for sure. Okay. So anything else that we want to talk about before we wrap it today? Um, Yeah. I have one more question. So like I mentioned earlier, I think that like one potentially valid takeaway from the original paper um, is that there might be lots of like crappy data floating around out there that hasn't been flagged, right? So people maybe haven't like dug into the freeform responses or maybe they didn't include attention checks or they didn't like look at how long people spent on the study or something like that. Um, and then that data is like published in a journal and somewhere. So I guess m- my first question is how ubiquitous do you think that is? Like how how much of the data that's published in in journals from online studies is sort of trash. And then my follow-up is, you know, do you think that journals should start requiring or or maybe just rewarding certain kinds of best practices when it comes to ensuring data quality from online studies? Yeah, so my intuition actually is that in published studies, that's not very common because if the data quality is low, that adds noise. And so you don't Mm -hmm. get a significant result. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, where it becomes a concern is if you're doing a replication study. And let's say you fail to replicate the effect. But there, I think, because replicators are aware that they that might be a question that somebody has that a skeptic would bring up, I feel like they're more attuned to these data quality issues. Mm -hmm. I can't really see... I mean, it so yeah, there's one special case actually, um, which is attrition. So it might be that differential attrition yeah. could artifactually produce results. Yeah. Um, and I think there's at least one paper demonstrating that as a like a kind of proof of concept that it can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something that I typically see reported. That probably it would be nice if we had a norm that it were. Uh, but other than that, I don't see how data quality, like bad data quality could produce a false positive. It seems like it would just produce false negatives. It could produce deflated effect sizes, I guess. Yeah, that's right. So it might be, well, yeah. It it could be that the effect sizes that people are reporting on online studies are actually uh, an underestimate, biased downwards, because the data are particularly noisy Mm -hmm. there yeah that wouldn't be that surprising to me yeah that might be that might be um i don't know whether i think that's a huge problem um i wouldn't put that in my top 10 list of like methods issues in psychology that i currently worry about i guess Uh yeah right (laughs) that's fair (laughs) okay um all right well uh thanks as always for listening And we will talk to you soon.